This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. We are shifting gears a little bit to welcome Tyler Rye to the show, an assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Glad to have you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, you are a friend of the Wharton Social Impact Initiatives. You're on our website in some of our photos. <laughs> so thank you for, for being a we model. We have low standards for friendship, apparently. Right? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say low standards for photos. <laughs> no, no, no. For a reason not. I'm on radio? <laughs> I have a face for radio. That's fine. Um, but And we were just sort of talking about how we think spring might be springing here on campus. Yep. We can smell the mulch, at least. Um, but that also reminds us that the semester is flying by, too. This is true. <laughs> so, Tyler, again, we, you know, I mentioned that you're a friend of the Warren Social Impact Initiative because your research is relevant to the types of topics that we are interested in as well. So let's start just sort of at the high level about your research interests broadly and things that you might teach here at Wharton. Sure. So uh, in terms of teaching, I teach uh, venture creation to MBAs and undergrads and try and bring in a, a social and ecological responsibility component to that. But my research is much more focused on that latter piece. You know, social enterprises, how is it that you can, through venture, create an impact in the world? So looking at that in the context of different types of hybrid organizations, uh, microfinance in particular, and then starting to branch out now, looking at topics around impact investing and and really high-level things about how impact investing dollars shape the behavior of the organizations that are looking for these dollars and trying to create impact. Yeah. And so um, your your research, a lot of that started in microfinance, right? That's right. So um, tell us, I mean, at the highest level, if you can, it's hard for academics, I think, sometimes, but I, th- I think you're capable of it. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll some see. of your of your prior research, like sort of if you can summarize some of that. Sure. So just, uh, I mean, a bit of background on microfinance. Uh, it, it's a lot like traditional banking, but geared at financially excluded populations. And the theory of change that sits underneath microfinance is this idea that if you can put capital into the hands of disadvantaged people, this gives them a chance to, one, you know, buffer against any sort of income shocks that might send them spiraling into really you know, deep and intractable poverty, uh, or two, you know, actually give them a, an upward path towards mobility by you know, giving them a little capital to start and grow businesses. And so in terms of the research I've done, some of the earlier stuff really got at the, the idea that microfinance tries to target poor women. Uh, women. And that's the image, right? Yeah. That's right. And I mean, you know, going back to the earliest days of Mohammed Yunus and Grameen Bank, it really was, you know, it was, it was called women's banking, uh, you know, way back in the early stages because it was so tightly equated with that population. And, you know, it, it makes sense, right? You know, in any society around the world, women are poorer than men. Right. And if you look at extreme poverty, women are way overrepresented. So if you're looking at any kind of an intervention to try and address poverty, it makes sense to focus on women. And so one of the papers I did looked at the relationship between societal patriarchy and the behavior that microfinance organizations had in terms of lending to women. And you know, the, the top line finding is pretty obvious, right? If you have a society that's really patriarchal, there's going to be barriers to lending to women. This is going to be tougher to do. You're going to see less outreach to this population, no matter how well-intentioned the microfinance organizations might be. But the novelty in the paper was we actually found out that patriarchy isn't one thing. Patriarchy loads onto to different factors. So a little bit of, of academic let's speak do here. This. Yes. Yeah, let's break down the pa- patriarchy. 
Let's do it. <laughs> says, it. Says the two men. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, let's, let's mansplain patriarchy. Yes. All right, I'm on it. I've got it. <laughs> Continue, please. Um, so what we found was uh, that if you look at different measures of patriarchy, um, they load onto different things. So you can see patriarchy in the family and religion, and those tend to load together, yeah. right? So they're highly correlated. Uh, you can also see patriarchy in the professions and in the state. But the interesting thing is when you look at countries around the world, you know, patriarchy across these different measures doesn't always track with the other measures. And so there's some countries, and, you know, and you could think of like Afghanistan, right, would be, especially under Taliban, high patriarchy across all of those measures. And then you can look at other countries like Sweden, low patriarchy across those measures. Still patriarchal societies, still gender inequality, uh, but certainly much more equal than a lot of other nations. And then what was really surprising to me, and we didn't expect to see this in the data. It was one of these, uh-oh, our original hypothesis didn't pan out. Let's see what Which we can... Which is the fun part of research, right? Well, yeah. fun and terrifying, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you put all this work in and it's like, you know, the results come back and it's nothing. You're like, uh-oh, okay, yeah. is this a, a big waste of time? Um, in this case, it, it turns out it arguably wasn't. Um, and what we saw was there's a whole bunch of nations that showed this stable configuration of patriarchy that's really entrenched in the family and in religion. But women made systematic advances in the state and in the professions. And so you see, you know, women in legislatures, uh, you know, represented in policymaking, uh, as well as, you know, going to school, getting professional training. And what we found was the countries where there was the most lending to women through microfinance wasn't the ones where there was low patriarchy. We actually found that they didn't differ too much from countries with high patriarchy. And we did some interviews to try and understand why, and people kept on telling us that patriarchy wasn't a problem anymore, so they didn't need to focus on women, which is absolutely incorrect, right? right like, right. patriarchy still is a problem, but it disappeared from consciousness because you could point to, you know, the rising tide across different metrics. So you didn't see a lot of outreach to women there. But in the nations where there was high patriarchy in the family and religion, but women were making advances in other areas, you saw a ton of activity in terms of lending to women through microfinance. Women were much more motivated to work in microfinance organizations as loan officers, making it easier to go out and make loans to women. And you saw much more government funding to microfinance organizations, but only nonprofit ones that had as a mandate to focus on women as a population. Mm. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, that was fun. And uh, yeah, after that, started looking at you know financing into microfinance, how these organizations get their money to lend. Most microfinance organizations can't accept deposits, so like a traditional bank take our deposits, and then on-lend that out. Microfinance mostly can't do that because it's not regulated, so they have to rely on external capital. And so there's different sources of that. And, and we looked at, you know, how do they behave? Because ideally, you know, the commercial sources are going to the, you know, big, established, you know, financially viable players. Uh, government sources, public capital should be going to support the organizations that are not yet financially viable on their own, can't access public capital mar or private capital markets, um, but, you know, need a little bit of a, a push to get there. And then, you know, the charitable funding, you know, should be for the, you know, the true right. believer organizations. And what we found out was that in steady state, this, this ecology breaks down how it should. Or not, it doesn't, doesn't break down, that's the wrong word. It, uh, it works like it should. The organizations, the capital providers target the types of microfinance organizations they say they're going to and that they should to make the whole system work. That's interesting to me because my some of the criticisms of, larger development finance institutions, like the IFC or the African Development Bank or other things, um, 
is that because they sort of are like quasi governmental, they have some sort of taxpayer, you know, you know, like we're using taxpayer money mm-hmm. to do this, mm-hmm. um, that they are actually investing in traditionally commercial enterprises that, you know, and not using it more in a catalytic way, as you sort of said, maybe that mid tier could be. So I'm, that's a really interesting finding for me. So, you know, you're exactly right. And it, it was one of the things that we wanted to look at in writing this paper and doing this analysis was, I mean, you know, DFI, sovereign wealth funds, you know, any kind of government finance, uh, you know, in general, you know, the, the criticism that you're levying, you know, is, it's out there, right? Like people levy this, and I think rightfully so. And in microfinance specific, specifically, uh, there was an organization uh, called MicroRate, or, you know, ratings mm-hmm. agency, looking at different microfinance institutions and, you know, are they credit worthy or not? And they uh, looked at Latin American microfinance, and they they found evidence for what you're saying, right? They called it crowding out, right? So the public sources come in, they offer capital in better terms, and they they go after the same investments as, you know, commercial funders would, but they give better terms and they they crowd this capital out, and this is a problem. Like as the recipient of capital, why wouldn't I take the ones on better terms? Oh, it's totally (laughs) rational. Yeah, it makes makes perfect sense if you're the organization. Um, So what we found out was that, you know, in steady state, that doesn't happen, right? Like... The players focus on who they say they should to play the role, you know, that we think leads to a healthy microfinance sector. But as soon as there's any kind of uncertainty, you know, political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, environmental uncertainty, uh, the whole thing collapses on itself and everyone focuses on the same big, strong microfinance institutions. Mm. Interesting. And so that's where you see the crowding out happen, uh, you know, really linked with, uh, you know, external environmental factors. Got it. So, so one of the things about microfinance for our listeners, you know, I mean, the the idea I think is impact driven. You know, that we are sort of supporting economic development, often you know, at the base of the pyramid, and um, that people can improve their livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that that theory of change is, as you said. Um, and so, the idea is, you know, microfinance organizations are some of the earlier social enterprises, and sometimes the lending thereof is also into social enterprises. So, can you talk about, you know, I think as a transition into your new research into sort of this hybridity and sort of mission and and profit and purpose, all those buzzwords? Yeah, um, yeah. So, the, the impact of microfinance is still an open question, right? Right. There's there's the evidence outcomes, on both sides. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, the the outcomes, the impacts in terms of reducing poverty. Um, so maybe we'll just set that aside for now. It's probably a, a bigger question. We yeah. could probably do half an hour on just that. Um, but in terms of the other question you're asking around, you know, purpose and profits, you know, mission and, you know, economic uh, responsibility. Uh, yeah. You know, these are tensions that sit at the core of organizations like microfinance. You know, so, you know, it's hard enough to do one thing well as a business. You know, like if you want to be a charity or you want to be a business, you know, doing that and doing it well is tough. I need right? to sell that widget. Right. And sell as many as I can. That's right. Or I need to create this impact and, you know, maximize that while keeping the lights on. Yeah. And so when you've got multiple missions, this creates tensions in the core of these organizations, right? Because, you know, if everything's humming along okay, it's not a big deal. But as soon as there's any sort of moment where you have to decide what you're going to do, right? Where Where are you going to cut? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what do you prioritize, you know? Do you try and, you know, move more commercial? Do you try and retain the social mission? Do you try and maximize that? How does this play into, you know, the day-to-day, your revenue generation, your ability to attract finance, all of the rest? And, and it becomes really fraught, right? So leaders have to deal with this. I've done some, some research, mostly theoretical stuff on, you know, how leaders think in paradoxical ways and how, you know, try and balance these considerations out, uh, you know, internally. But then within the organizations, you'll typically have different groups who, 
you know, catalyze you know, or form around different sides of the duality, right? Groups who, Employee. you know, want to push the social, groups who want to, you know, keep an eye on the bottom line. And they tend to fight with each other. And so that, that makes things, you know, a little bit fraught and problematic for these organizations sometimes. Yeah. So... No, and it fits perfectly with a lot of the information we've had from entrepreneurs we've interviewed over the years, that they they really try to figure out how they balance the two. And, you know, it's, it's often... Um, changes that sometimes they may be balancing a little bit more on the financial if that's where the need is balancing a little bit more on the social once they get this stabilized so it's it's a very um uneven balance bar they're on that's right and you know different entrepreneurs and different people are are better at this than others right and a lot of it comes down to i mean how much time are you going to spend to think about this stuff and how much expertise do you have on both sides right Mm -hmm. Right. and so if you have deep expertise on both sides and a commitment to maximizing on both metrics you know, your thinking is forced to become more integratively complex. And if you, you know, enter that, you know, integratively complex thinking, then you come up with innovative solutions, right? And if you don't, then you're in this, like, basic trade-off reasoning, you know, more of A, less of B. Um, yeah, it's less interesting, less exciting. Yeah. So there's this tension. I think we can we can agree that there's this tension, and, and we've seen that anecdotally um, and in your research. But your your newest paper... I, th- I think it's been published, right? It has. Congrats on that. <laughs> we know you. it's important for you. <laughs> it is. Um, it, and listeners, bear with me. Don't fall asleep because the title's long. Taking trade-offs seriously, examining the contextually contingent relationship between social outreach intensity and financial sustainability in global microfinance. Well done. Well done. Uh, exactly. And and that's a perfect academic article title. <laughs> we are for great our and branded. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Something punchy, right? Like Catchy. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I was going to do a hashtag title. Um, you know, the journal editor said, no thanks. What else you got? And so you got this, you know, word salad that yeah, Nick well, just this, read. I, I think that Twitter actually expanded its its word count or, or character count. But would that fit in an old tweet? I'm not I sure. Think, so. I think I'm still over. Yeah. But all right. So so that was a lot. It's it's a little jargony or academic. So break it down for our listeners. What does the paper cover? Yeah, it, it's just really simply, you know, so building on the conversation we're having about tensions inside the organizations, I wanted to see, you know, are, are there actually trade-offs that motivate this stuff? So it's one thing to say that you got to balance social and financial. It's another to look at. So on the ground, do these things actually pull against each other or are they mm-hmm. symbiotic? Mm-hmm. And so this was just an empirical exercise where my co-author, Eric Zhao... I lo- yeah, I lo- just an empirical exercise. <laughs> <laughs> he says so casually. That's right. You know, I do my uh, physical exercise and my empirical exercises. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> I love that. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Um, so, and what we were doing was looking at microfinance around the world and seeing if we could find countries where the social and the financial were more symbiotic uh, versus contexts where, you know, there really are acute trade-offs that these organizations have to deal with. Because the implication is, you know, if, if it's symbiotic, then, you know, we can get past the discussion about what trade-off reasoning looks like and we can have conversations about, you know, how you organize finance and regulation to really grow these organizations if the trade-offs are acute and actually doing outreach is really, really hard and really stressful on the bottom line, this is a whole different set of implications for what we want to do to support these organizations and the impact that they want to have, right. as well as their financial bottom line. And so what we did was, I mean, a couple of things. So we wanted to think about factors that would affect both the social mission as well as the ability to generate revenue. And so on the social mission side, you know, a simple insight was just that, you know, problems like poverty, they're not continuous, right? I mean, they're categorical. You know, different categories of people tend to have these problems disproportionately. 
So women tend to be poorer than men. Minorities tend to be poorer than the majority. Uh, and you can break this down in a variety of different ways. And it, it's evident in, at different levels around the world. And so in countries where there's a high level of discrimination and a high level of category-based category inequality, our idea was it was going to be harder to address problems like poverty. Because if you have one group, you know, typically the dominant group who's, you know, doing the outreach, setting up the organization, mobilizing the capital to try and, you know, attack this problem. But if the group they're trying to help, you know, feels discriminated against, doesn't trust the dominant group, has, you know, a history of, you know, abuse or, you know, even more foundationally, if there's linguistic differences or religious differences that, you know, fundamentally imprint the ability to interact, that they should make outreach much harder, mm -hmm. right? So if you can have people that are like each other interacting, you know, I give you money, you know, we're on the same page, we can talk to each other, there's a level of implicit trust, this is a much smoother interaction than if, you know, let's say Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, right? Like this becomes, okay, well, we're going to give you money, but wait, wait, I don't uh, trust you. Right, right. You know, I've been down this road before, yeah. fool me once, right? And so, I mean, we found strong evidence for that. We put together measures of discrimination in different nations. We looked at uh, 53, 153 countries uh, around the world. I, I believe 2,037 microfinance organizations <laughs> in 115 nations. Oh, 115. Okay. Yeah, not 153. We had a couple drop out because we couldn't get data. <laughs> um, and we also looked at measures of uh, ethnic, religious, and linguistic uh, fractionalization and polarization, which are just you know economics-based measures that look at, you know, group-based stuff, right? Like how many groups are they? How different are they? It doesn't speak to discrimination or friction, but, you know, correlates with this stuff. Um, and we found really robust evidence that in societies where, you know, problems like poverty are based in these, you know, deep categorical inequalities, interventions like microfinance have a really, really hard time sustaining their bottom line. It's just so much tougher to try and pursue the same mission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not, I mean, we're not talking about just, I think actually your previous research in our conversation is interesting because you you sort of use Sweden as an example, which one might think is a little more homogenous. And I don't know how those categorical sort of dividers sort of pop up in a, a society like Sweden. But you could imagine in other countries, like you said, the Hutus and the Tutsis in, in Rwanda, like we sort of know that from the genocide. Um, I mean, but yet Sweden... They're in sort of lending, like, how does that, how do those findings jive? Uh, I mean, so different things. Um, so the one about Sweden and the, and the level of lending, um, and I was using Sweden as an example, right? It, you know, it's a stand-in. I, I, yeah. I'd have to look at the exact figures, and I don't want to uh, disparage my Nordic heritage <laughs> here uh, <laughs> unnecessarily. Um, but you, so there might be less lending to women in a country like that, but the ease of doing it would be easier than in a country that is more right. unequal in, in this categorical way. Yep. So, you know, different different metrics. Okay, got it. So, you know, if I'm looking to invest or, you know, sort of taking it to the practical, you know, how do we take lessons learned from your research and, and bring it to practice? Um, what Do you have some advice? I mean, maybe it's microfinance specific, but like, what are we looking for in, in organizations that might have that friction or that tension? So, I mean, I think the findings that come out of this research specifically are, are higher, higher level policy things, um, you know, as well as implications in terms of how we want to think about finance in the microfinance sector in different countries. So, you know, impact investing, like, you know, commercial finance, it's double bottom line. It's not, it's not single bottom line. It's not charitable money. 
And so the viability of trying to rely on those financial instruments in countries where it's really, really hard to have a sustainable social impact, it's probably not a great idea, right? Like that money should go to other places. And if we're serious about using tools like microfinance to achieve impact in these really, really tricky contexts, we need to look at different funding sources, right? You know, governments need to have a stronger role. Charities need to have a stronger role. We need to do things like, you know, build regulations and try and ensure stability in these countries as and, a precondition for any of this right. working. So you do that first, and then that sets the, pay, the, the ground for a more successful uh, impact investing intervention later on. Right. And Tyler, yeah. would, would you say that – I'm curious about the work of a policy angle, like you said, but are we talking primarily in, let's say, emerging and frontier markets, developing countries, or like when we think about investing in Philadelphia with, with very different, I think, categorical groups, as you call them? Like, are, do you think the lessons are generalizable to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a really different level of analysis, uh, you know, looking country by country versus looking across different, you know, ethnic, linguistic, religious groups in, in one city like Philadelphia. But, you know, the base insight, which is, you know, you have to be really thoughtful and serious about the roots of these problems, as well as how they're intertwined with broader social structures. It's generalizable, and it really applies, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that really, you know, in the terms of the example that you brought up, my research findings are more of a sensitizing device, right? If you're going to go out and try and create impact, be thoughtful about the broader context, right? And don't be surprised when stuff doesn't work as well as you thought it would. Right. Because, you know, this isn't just, you know, it's not a mechanical exercise of putting money in people's hands and addressing poverty, right? Like poverty is it's deeply rooted. It's cultural. There's all sorts of different things that it's intertwined with. It's a wicked problem. And if you don't take the time to diagnose what it is you're trying to do, you know, in terms of solving this problem... You know, you're probably going to be addressing it on a real surface level as opposed to get into the deeper roots and, you know, and the causality where you can actually affect a more impactful change. And Cheryl, I think, I mean, I really think as we think about our Philadelphia work and, you know, our listeners who are, you know, thinking about how they're investing from a place-based perspective, or maybe they're investing in emerging markets or something like that, like how, how might you actually affect change um, in a more pragmatic way? And I think contextualized, um, mindful way. I think I think your research really is relevant there and I I like that it's it's sort of sensitizing as you as you right. called it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I'll I'll bring up just quickly, I see the clock ticking down. I know we're <laughs> almost at a time. But the other thing that this points to is that, you know, commercial capital is not panacea for addressing social problems, right? It, it's a tool and there's a place where it can work. Yeah. But if we, you know, step back and and seed all social impact to commercial capital, we're going to end up with you know all sorts of square pigs trying to fit in round holes, and it, yeah. it's not the way to go. I think that's right. So thanks so much, Tyler Rye, prof- Assistant Professor of Management here at Wharton. This has been Dollars and Change. We'll te- uh, catch you next week on SiriusXM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.